Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. I just want to say it's a real joy to be here at Benediction this morning. I'm thankful for your ministry in our city. I'm also thankful to Mike and Heather and for our friendship and I'm friends with many of you in this room and thankful for that. I'm blessed. I was at James North for 29 years, one year as an intern, then 28 years as the lead pastor, and it was a really good season. God was just very kind. Uh, When I left, there was about 100 people meeting in a Portuguese-speaking congregation, about 100 in the Karen. They're the uh, refugees from Burma um, that had been exterminated by their own government, running through their own country, some of them fleeing to Thailand, and About a hundred of them were gathering, and then the James North congregation as well. And um, we just watched God do some really good things, and we're thankful for that. Um, But with you this morning, it's just a joy and delight to be here, to be able to take God's word and be able to open it to you. Let me pray. You are God, and you are good. This is your word. We can't understand it without you. We need you. Spirit of God, would you open our eyes to its truth? We ask in Christ's name. Amen. God is necessarily complex. He is necessarily complex. If there's a being in this universe, God, who's able to speak things into existence simply because he chooses to, and be able to sustain those things, like the universe, by his might and will, he is necessarily complex. So as you're in a series understanding his character and nature, and trying to understand who God is, There are going to be some things as you try to understand them, they're just going to feel confounding and challenging. So three words we use about God are that God is omniscient, he's all-knowing, that God is uh, omnipotent, he's all-powerful, and that God is omnipresent, he's everywhere at once. And this morning, I want to take a look for a few minutes about what it means that God's omnipresent, that God is everywhere at the same time. Now, for some, that can be just incredibly terrifying. To think that God is everywhere, watching everything you do for some, brings a great deal of terror and dread. For others, it's incredibly comforting to know that God is with you. There's nowhere you can go where he's not there. But this morning, what I want to do is take a look at some of the passages in Scripture that talk about this doctrine, and then just really focus in on, what does this mean for you? Like, what does this mean for you this morning as someone who's either a believer, or if you're here and you're not a believer, who's trying to understand who God is and how he can relate to you. So God was ever present. This is Deuteronomy 31. This is Moses speaking to the people. Moses has rebelled against God in his rebellion. He's not allowed to enter into the promised land. He's passing the torch on to the people. And this is what he says in Deuteronomy 31. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. That is the people in the promised land that they're going to take the land from. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. God's with you. He won't leave you or forsake you. God then, speaking to Joshua in Joshua 1, as Joshua is now taking command of the people, God starts by saying, Moses is dead. That's just a pretty straightforward moment, right? Moses is dead, God says. And then he says this, Have I not commanded you, God says, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. 
They're about to go into the promised land and God says, I'm with you. This is daunting. This is challenging. This is difficult. I'm right here. I'm right here. God is everywhere. We heard this from Psalm 139 already today. I'll just read a few of the verses. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me. The light will become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine in the day, for darkness is as light to you. The psalmist there is saying God is comprehensively everywhere. There's nowhere you can go to flee from his presence. There's nowhere you can go to escape him. You hear this in Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah says, and this is God, Jeremiah is quoting God, am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away, who can hide in secret places so that I cannot see them, declares the Lord. Do not I fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. God says, I'm everywhere. God says, I'm the guy you can't invite to play hide and seek with. Because where are you going to go for my presence? Where are you going to hide from me that I won't be like, oh yeah, you're right there. It's not like, you know, some of you remember when you played hide and seek with your children. And if you want to play the game for a few minutes as you're playing hide and seek, and they weren't very patient, eventually one of your children would say, I'm here. I'm here. We never need to do that with God. God always knows where we are. So John Frame, a theologian, says this. So how can we tell when God is present or absent? Scripture's answer is that God is present everywhere because as we have seen, his power and knowledge are everywhere. In every event, everywhere, in, in, sorry, in every event, everywhere, takes place by God's power. And if he has exhaustible knowledge of everything his power has brought to pass, then certainly he is not absent, but present in each event. Though his presence is not quite the same as the physical presence, or, the, or as a sorry, as the presence of physical beings. So God's omnipotence and omniscience imply his omnipresence. He's saying if God knows everything, that means God has to be everywhere. If God's all powerful, that means God has to be everywhere. He says his omnipresence, though it is a characteristic of God, is a necessity of God for him to know everything and be all powerful. But what does that mean for us? Like, what does it specifically mean for you as believers here at benediction? Well, I'm going to flip into the New Testament. Matthew 28. God is ever-present. In his resurrected body, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go, make disciples of every nation, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teach them to obey everything I've commanded you, and I am with you always the very end of the age. Jesus, as he's commissioning his disciples, lets them know two things. All authority belongs to him, and he's with them always. He's with them always. Often when we hear words about evangelism, sharing our faith, it's terrifying. Jesus tells them to go, and many of us think that means we're to be somewhere else. This is really important to hear. If God is not calling you outside of Hamilton right now, if you're not sensing God working in you to call you somewhere else, that means that where you are right now, the apartment or house you live in, the place where you work, the church you're a part of, the neighborhood you're in, that's your go. 
There's not another go. This right here is your go. It's the go that God has granted you. It's the go that God has blessed you with. And we live in a challenging day. We live in a day where people assume if you believe in him, you're anti-intellectual. We live in a day where people think that Christianity's belief system on values is actually immoral. You can read articles on that. We're, we're called the immoral ones because of what we're repressing. And so we live in a challenging day. And what does Jesus say as you live in Hamilton, wanting to share the faith that God has given you with other people? He says, all authority belongs to me, and I'm with you every step of the way. I am with you always. It's the very end of the age. So one of the things I do in my travels is I pray, God, would you open a door? Over the years, I've sat on a variety of boards and asked the Lord to open up doors on those boards, lots of non-Christian boards. Recently, I took some courses on facilitation, some certifications in Toronto. So I was in this, I've been in three different courses in the last month, um, these certifications. And in each class, I've said, Lord, this week, this is my go. This week on the train, this week, you know, sitting here in Toronto, this week in these courses, this is my go. So I want to get to know these people and see if there's an opportunity for witness. And I just pray, God, would you be with me? God, would you walk with me? In each of those courses, God opened a door. In the second course I was in on strategic planning, um, the, the facilitator at one point looked at all of us and said, you know, just 11 of us in the class, but people from all across our nation looked at us and said, uh, why are you alive? What's your purpose? And he looked at me and he started with me and said, Dwayne, what's your purpose? And I simply said, Jesus Christ is my purpose. And everyone went silent. Like nobody knew what to do with that. He said, I've never heard that before. Now, that was one of the classes where there was another believer in the class, very charismatic Pentecostal woman beside me. And she just uttered, praise the Lord. She was so excited that I just said, Jesus Christ was my purpose. But at lunch that day, we all sat around a table together. And as we sat at that table, people were asking me questions of, so you believe in Jesus? Like, you're not just a minister. You actually believe in him. I said, most ministers do. But yes, I am one that actually really believes in Jesus and had a chance just to share the gospel. Who is Jesus? What has he done for us? Why do we need him? One gentleman in the class looked at me at one point during lunch and said, I've never heard this before. So where's your go right now? Your neighborhood, your family, your workplace. And it might be terrifying. I mean, I wanted to be credentialed. This was the first day of the three-day credentialing course. And I'm like, Lord, we're like 20 minutes in. And he asked me my purpose. And I thought, well, do I tell him, you know, Klein Consulting? No, that's not true. That's not my purpose. So I'm like, Lord, I'm just going to say what my purpose is. It's you. And I did. And the Lord opened up multiple doors out of that, that whole week. It might be terrifying, but what does Jesus say? I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, how is Jesus with us always? In what way is he with us? Well, he tells us in John 16, his spirit is in us. Jesus, God the Son, his spirit is in us. So this is verse 7 to 11 of John 16. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it's good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor, that's the Holy Spirit, will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. 
And when he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment, in regard to sin because men do not believe in me, in regard to righteousness because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer, and in regard to judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Jesus is God the Son. When he came, he chose to cloak his deity with humanity. He incarnated himself. He confined himself to a woman's womb. He was born completely helpless. He needed to be fed and changed. He never sinned. His whole life, he never did anything wrong. He fulfilled the law in two ways. He was the fulfillment of every messianic promise through the whole Old Testament. And he fulfilled the law by never breaking it. So that then his righteousness could be given to us for anyone who believes in him. He put his, our sin upon himself on the cross so that he could grant us his righteousness. But he chose when he was here incarnate to be located in one place at one time. In the book of Philippians, it talks about how he chose to set aside some of the rights of deity, the prerogatives of deity, to incarnate himself. One of them, I believe, was his omnipresence. He was located in one place at one time while he was here. And so the disciples see him. They're coming to an understanding that he's the Messiah, but they don't want him to go. And he says, you don't get it. Unless I go, the Spirit can't come. And when the Spirit comes, he's going to be with all of you. You see, if Jesus was still here incarnate, he could come to my house tonight, but he couldn't be at my house and Mike's at the same time, right? So he'd miss your party to be at mine. We're not having a party tonight, but that's just, you know, maybe we'll come to yours. Um, and, and yet, tonight, because the Spirit has come, God's Spirit will be at the Molesky's party, will be at our home, and will be with every believer across this entire nation. There are hundreds of millions of believers gathering this morning across our entire world to celebrate who Jesus is, and God's Spirit is in them all. That is magnificent, isn't it? He is with you always to the very end of the age. Now, he explains three things Jesus does that the God's Spirit's going to do. One, one is his role in salvation, the Holy Spirit's role in salvation. He says he's going to convict the world of guilt in regard to sin because men do not believe in me. So what's happening here? Well, when Jesus was here, because he was perfect, never did anything wrong, they could look at Jesus, anyone could look at him, and know God's standard for sin. Know God's standard for holiness. Know that Jesus isn't sinning, so this is God's standard for holiness, and we're sinning. So they would understand that. They would understand some of their conviction because Jesus was here, and they could see what holiness looked like. Jesus says, when I go, my spirit's going to come. And he's going to actually convict the world of sin. He's going to let people know that what they're doing is outside of the bounds. That what they're doing is something that God doesn't want them to do. And he says this, it's, it's in regard to, uh, sorry, regarding sin because people don't believe in me. So God's spirit, when he's with you, is at work in people's lives to convict them of their sin so they realize they need Jesus. They realize that this is what I need. I need him. They realize that they need to turn from whatever they believed or trusted in so they can turn to him. And he's in you. Acts 1, 7 and 8, as Jesus is ascending, Jesus says this. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. This is about his return. But you will receive power 
when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Jesus says, my spirit, who is in every believer, is going to grant you power for witness, the ability to articulate the gospel, the ability to share with people, because I'm with you, and I'm with all of you. In Titus 3, he says this, when the, the kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Did you hear that? He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit when he poured out on us, uh, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. We often think of the Father's role in salvation, for God so loved, the Son's role in salvation. It's by his sacrifice we are saved, but God's Spirit, who's in all of us, is also pivotal in salvation. Pivotal in salvation. In Luke 11, I don't have this on the screen, but Jesus says this, when you're brought before synagogues and rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you'll say. In that moment, the Holy Spirit will teach you what to say. Will teach you what to say. God's Spirit is in every believer, granting them power for witness. I've worked with the Koran people for over a decade. Many of them have become good friends of mine. They were being exterminated by their own government back in 2006 and 7. They fled to Thailand, about 150,000 made it there. They never knew electricity, running water, or sanitation till they came to Canada. So the one refugee camp where some of them lived in Thailand, 400,000 people living in this refugee camp. Imagine, like that's Hamilton almost. 400,000 people, no running water, no sanitation, no electricity. Incomprehensible for me to understand that. And when they came to Canada, most of their young people, their teenagers, walked away from the Lord. Right? They came to faith in Christ in the refugee camps, but they were just taught to know Jesus. They weren't taught any depth to their salvation. And as they came to Canada, these young people would sit with their parents who knew no English and would say, why do you believe in God? And their parents said, because we do. And they'd go to you know, their grandparents, why do you believe in God? Because we do. And they would say, well, our teachers don't. And they all walked away from the Lord. Bunches have gotten involved in all kinds of stuff that then young people who were rebelling get involved with the life of drugs and all of that. And one of their young men at 21 years of age, six years ago, ended his life. Five years ago, ended his life. They were actually playing hide and seek. And he hung himself while his friends were looking for him. I took that funeral that week. It was an awful thing to be a part of. His best friend at the time lost all hope, Tunay, and spiraled himself into a life of drugs and addiction and everything that comes with it. Selling drugs, being a part of all of that. His family, eight of them living in a two-bedroom apartment, kicked them out of their apartment. He found himself homeless and on the street, and his grandfather took him in. His grandfather came to Canada when he was almost 70. His grandfather couldn't read or write his own language, let alone English. He could speak it, but he couldn't read or write it. But his grandfather was a godly man. He loved Jesus deeply. The only scripture this man knew was that which he could memorize because he couldn't read or write. And he took his grandson in and faithfully witnessed to him day after day after day. He didn't know any apologetics. He couldn't defend the faith with some fancy argument. All he could do was live his faith out in front of his grandson 
and know that his spirit, God's spirit, was in him. While the grandfather passed away last November, Tune was sitting at the funeral, and partway through the funeral, God's spirit just broke through and reminded him of his grandfather's witness, and Tune just wept during his grandfather's funeral, and Jesus saved him. He went home, he took all the drugs he had at home, and he just flushed them down the toilet. He took his phone, and he smashed it, and he put it in water so it could never be used again. And he came and met with us because his older brother had come to faith in Christ through our ministry just about eight months before and went to his older brother and said, Jesus saved me today. I want to know how to follow him. Would you show me? And then he showed up at James North. And when I was baptizing him in January before I was done at the church and he was sharing his testimony, he looked out at everyone and he simply said this, though my grandfather wasn't educated, God's spirit was in him. And his witness was powerful because God was with him every day, wherever he went. Is that not good news for us? God's spirit is in you. I mean, you might be talking to a neighbor or a friend or a family member and be like, I don't know how to argue with them. I don't know. God's spirit is in you. And he will grant you power for witness, what you need in that moment with that person. Because he's God and his spirit is in you. But the second thing Jesus says is that he will convict the world of guilt in regard to righteousness because Jesus is going to the Father where you can see him no longer. So when you would look at Jesus, people would know the standard for holiness, like I said, the standard for righteousness. They would look at Jesus and say, this is what God would do if God were here, because God was here. He was God incarnate. And Jesus is saying, now that I'm gone, my spirit will be in you as believers. And I'm going to help you grow in your faith. My spirit's going to help you grow in your faith. My spirit's going to cause you to become like Christ. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 says it this way. We ought to always thank God for you, brothers loved by the Lord. Because from the beginning, God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. 1 Peter 1.2 says this. We've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ by sprinkling of his blood. Salvation is God's gift to us. Sanctification is the process of God's spirit working in us to become like Christ. And so we ask the Lord to search us. We ask the Holy Spirit to reveal things to us. As I, as I open up his word every day, and I've had to find whole new devotional patterns when I'm not preaching every week. And I'm attending church more than I'm, I'm preaching. I've had to figure out whole new devotional patterns for, that I've had for the last 29 years. They've been wonderful, but it's been a whole new experience for me. And every day as I open the word, as I practice when I was pastoring, I would say, God, I can't understand this word without you. So Spirit of God, would you reveal truth to me? And would you search me? And where there's areas in my life that I need encouraging, would you encourage me? Where there's areas where I'm sinning, would you rebuke me? I just pray a simple prayer like that every day. Asking God's spirit to work in me. Because sometimes I lose my temper. Because sometimes I'm proud. Because sometimes I battle sin. Don't, don't you feel like you battle sin every day? And God isn't somewhere out there watching you do this. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. And his spirit is in you. His spirit is in you. As your counselor and your guide, and your support. 
You don't have to become holy alone. Is that not great news? His Spirit is in you, walking with you to cause you to become like Christ. And lastly, thirdly here, Jesus says the Holy Spirit seals us. He's going to convict the world of guilt in regard to judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. What's he saying? You ever had the enemy make you feel like you're not saved even though you know you are? You've just sinned so much. You lost your temper and it was a big blowout. You were really proud in this moment. You sinned sexually in some area. And all of a sudden, that moment, you feel like, whew, God can't really love me. I can't really be his child. And you feel condemned. If God has saved you, that is the work of the enemy in your life, not the work of his spirit. What does Paul say in Romans? There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And he says one of the roles of God's Spirit in our life is to remind you that the prince of this world now stands condemned because you're not. And the reason you're not condemned is because of what Jesus has done for you. And so God's Spirit is in you in those moments when you feel like, man, you feel like there is condemnation. He's there to remind you there's no condemnation for you because you're in Christ Jesus and His Spirit seals you for the day of redemption. Ephesians 1. And you were also included in Christ when you believed the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked with him, uh, in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is your deposit, guaranteeing your inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. God's Spirit is at work in saving people. God's Spirit is at work in calling us to be like Christ and sanctifying us. And God's Spirit is in us reminding us that the enemy is condemned and we are not because of what Jesus has done on the cross. And he's doing that in the life of every believer on the planet right now across this world because he's everywhere and he's in you. And it is good news. When Jewel and Ivy were younger, we lived downtown and we have a two and a half story house and you know, our, our attic is our bedroom and we underpinned the basement at one time. And when our two first kids were born, they were far enough apart that I would just carry one of them through the house at, at the time. But when Jewel and Ivy were like, you know, one and two, they'd want to be carried together. And sometimes I'd, you know, pick both of them up and you're carrying the twins around the house and you're carrying up flights of stairs and they would squirm a little bit because they'd feel like they didn't have a good hold on me. But here's the truth. It really didn't matter how strong their hold was on me. What mattered was how strong my hold was on them. And sometimes we feel like this is all about this grip I've got on God. And it's not. Because my feeble hand is reaching out to him. But his strong abiding hand has taken mine. And it's not about how well I have a grip on God. It's about how well God has a grip on me. And he has an everlasting, eternal grip on me. His spirit is in me. His spirit is in you. And he'll never let us go. That's why God being everywhere matters. God the spirit is in you. But lastly, and this is from another text, from the book of Hebrews, God himself is enough. Hebrews 13, the author says, 
Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. That's quoting Deuteronomy 31 that we read earlier. And here the author says, hey, you don't need to worry about money. Be content with what you have. And then the argument, God is enough. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. We live in a really consumeristic and materialistic day where every marketing scheme out there is telling you that stuff will satisfy. And God says, don't, don't believe the world. I mean, this is written 2,000 years ago. Doesn't it look like it could be written right now? God says, I'm enough. Never will I leave you or forsake you. I'm enough. And this is true in every situation. I mean, the author here is talking about money, but it's true in every situation you find yourself in where the God says, no, the pleasures of this world, where, where, where the world says, no, this, where the world says, no, no, you, you, you need power. You need gratification. You need money. And the answer is always the same. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. God is enough. God is enough. In my last couple of years at James North, we had the privilege of seeing five young men and women from Buddhist homes come to faith in Christ. And it was an incredible, it was incredible to watch God do this. And he's at work in a number of their lives. Now we have a, they have an outreach on Tuesday nights with about 30 young people that come all from Muslim and Buddhist homes playing basketball together. But one of the young men who came to faith in Christ was Rick. Rick grew up in a Buddhist home. When Rick was uh, young, six years old, his dad won $400,000, became a drug cartel with it, was incarcerated for 10 years. And as a young teenager, Rick started attending the youth group at James North. He heard the gospel week after week, and partway through this, God saved him. He was about to be baptized. God had used our youth ministry in his life, so our youth pastor was going to baptize him. And the night before Rick was baptized, his mom sat on the edge of his bed and said, we're Buddhist, not Christian. I'm not going to stop you from being baptized, but I'm not going to go. Many of us who are older in this room have been baptized, and when we were baptized, it was a celebration of family and friends. Well, some of Rick's, came, some of Rick's friends came to his baptism, but none of his family. When it came to his family, he came alone. My niece and nephew were recently baptized, and grandparents and aunts and uncles, including us, were all there to celebrate. Rick just came by himself. But his friends came. And uh, Amy and I, my wife and I, said, we'll host the after party. We'll have all of them over after. And I said, what do you want to eat? And he said, nothing Asian. I eat way too much Asian food. So it was December when he was baptized, and I sat outside, I'll never forget it, in a snowstorm barbecuing chicken and sausages, and the snow was, and he looked out the window at one point at me and just smiled and said, thank you. Um, so he had about 30 of his friends come, Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, right, all from different faiths, all sitting in the front three pews and, and chairs, and he's about to be baptized by our youth pastor, and he's sharing his testimony. He looks out at them and he says, he says, you know, I thought being an academic would save me. He's got a really high average, would fulfill me. But I realized that it didn't. And then he said, I thought being really athletic would fulfill me, but I broke my arm and realized I'm fragile and it wouldn't. And then he said, I thought being really good looking, he thought he was actually really good looking, would fulfill me. And all the girls liking me would fulfill me, but I realized it wouldn't. And he looked out at his friends and he said, I've learned this, this one thing. He said, the only one who fulfills, the only person you can turn to is Jesus Christ. And then he looked at them and he said, I implore you this day to turn to him. He's the only one that will satisfy, the only one that will, that will fulfill you. And then he said this, 
and he'll never leave you alone. He'll never leave you alone. He's always with you. And then we baptized him. I was driving from a consulting gig I had the other night, and I called him on a Tuesday night to see how he was doing. And he said, oh, I'm so excited, but would you pray for me? I said, of course I would. He said, tonight, I'm going to help with the soccer league. James Orr still has the soccer league. And then after that, I'm running the basketball night. And, um, and I'm going to share my testimony for the first time. And I'm praying God's going to open up someone's eyes and save them. And so would you just pray that his spirit is with me? And I said, of course I will, Rick. God is with you. Is that not great news? God is with you when you're going to work. God is with you when you're going to school. God is with you when you're talking to your neighbors. God is with you when you're battling sin and struggling and he's longing to sanctify you. God is with you when the enemy is attacking you and telling you that you're not saved or you're not worthy or God doesn't want you. God is with you. His spirit is in you. God is with you when this world wants to tell you that everything about it is enough. And God is with you to tell you that he is enough because he is God. He is with you. And he's not just with you. He's with you individually. He's with you, benediction. He's with every church gathered across our globe in this entire world today, regardless of where they are. God is with them. Is that not great news? He is the God of the universe who is everywhere at once, and his spirit is in us. He's with you. Would you pray with me? Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.